welcome to the People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Hello and welcome to episode four of People's Poetry Podcast. My name is Jimmy Bowman and it's my absolute pleasure to have you here along with me. This is the poetry podcast that travels the UK talking to established poets as well as those taking their first steps into the world of poetry. Why poetry? Well, as an aspiring poet myself, I wanted to find out just what it was about poetry that made it still so very special, even in this instantly disposable Tinder generation of today. This is a podcast aimed at you at home, whether you're an avid fan of poetry or perhaps someone who's never really had an interest in it before. Maybe even the word poetry still makes your spine shudder because you think back to days at school when you were forced to study it. Poetry is for everyone. We all write poems every day. Our lives lend a poetic hand. Poetry isn't elitist and exclusive, it's inclusive. This is poetry for the people and you're all invited. This episode's featured poet is the amazing Jess Green. I was so very excited about this one. I've been a fan of Jess's work for some time now. Burning books and a self-help guide to being in love with Jeremy Corbyn. And I had lots of questions. We had lots to talk about. Jess obviously being very interested in education and me being a teacher. There was lots to speak about there. Both being members of the Labour Party and big Corbyn fans. There was lots to talk about there. The modern politics. What's gone wrong with it? Why are people, more people, into politics nowadays? Her work, which is fantastic. Her shows that she's touring at the moment with her band, The Mischief Thieves. There was lots and lots and lots to talk about i'm very excited for you to hear it right i'm joined by jess green in uh quite a nice pub in hammersmith thank you for joining me though that's all right thanks for having me right i've got a list here of stuff that you've achieved i mean i don't i'm gonna need to ask you how how long you've been writing for but your poem dear mr gove in 2014 is is certainly what the first thing i saw that you know i was aware of you from that poem and that's now over 300,000 views Burning Books and a Self-Help Guide to Being in Love with Jeremy Corbyn, both amazing collections on Burning Eye Books. You're, you've toured your poetry collections, you've got a band, The Mischief Thieves, there's a stage show adaptation of Burning Books, BBC Poetry Slam Champion 2018, and you've got your own night, Find the Right Words. That's amazing. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> that's very nice. Um, it's, yeah, it's slightly odd to hear your uh, achievements build off like that, so that's very nice. Yes. <laughs> Has that been... Um, quite a long journey to get there I mean how long was you writing before I've seen I'm sure I saw you did you go uni or something with Cecilia Knapp you were like you knew some other poets in in the early days so I um, I did a creative writing degree in Liverpool and then I graduated from that in 2010 and then um, and then worked worked in student politics for a bit and then um and then moved back to Leicester because there was no work in Liverpool and I was um, I was determined to try and my mum said what are you going to do for a living and I said I wanted to be a poet and she sort of gave me a year to try and make that happen and um, so I knew Cecilia from we were both in the Roundhouse Poetry Collective together um, so it was me Cecilia Knapp uh, Maria Ferguson Jack Rook um, Izzy Brooks um, so yeah so there was a real group of us um, yeah so we did that for a year and then it's interesting that kind of all of those people have gone off and are doing really sort of exciting things. Yeah. What an amazing group to be around. Your mum, I want to talk about your mum quickly. She sounds like a very formidable character through some of your poetry. And I've been drawing parallels. I'm going to 
sort of mention it later, your mum and my mum sound quite similar in, <laughs> in many degrees. But look, we, I suppose we need to talk about um, Dear Mr Gove briefly. You've probably been asked a million times. Why, what inspired you to write that? Why did you initially go with education? I know you're from a family of teachers, but what, what was it that really compelled you to sort of almost stick up for us teachers, I suppose? So I think it was a mix of things. So yeah, I grew up in a family of teachers. My mum was an English teacher and then a head teacher. Um, my sister is a teacher, my brother-in-law is a teacher. Um, and when I came back from university and um, I was trying to m make a living as a poet, one of the things that I did, I got part-time job in the afternoon working in a school library. And then in the mornings I was doing workshops in schools. Um, and when I was working in the school library, um, I was working with this woman who, um, she was the librarian, I was the reading champion, which is not a real job, <laughs> and uh, she hated books and she hated children, and she was taking the books to the tip. And uh, so I started sort of writing poems about that and about her, and then at the same time I was doing lots of workshops in schools, so I was sitting in a lot of staff rooms, and it just struck me that the same conversations were happening in every staff room that I was in, no matter where that was in the country. And so I started writing about that um, at the same time. So I think I've then kind of put a lot of those poems together, which is what became Burning Books. And one of those poems was Dear Mr. Gove, because at the time, you know, this was 2012, 2013, and, you know, Michael Gove's name was ringing around every staff room. I think people had pictures of him that they could throw darts at, you know. And, you know, one of the themes you talk about is the teacher shortage. Um, had, do you think much has changed now in 2019? I think what's really interesting is the fact that I was writing um, poems about education that at the time felt a little bit hyperbolic and, uh, and now those things seem tame because of how, how bad it's got. I think the teacher crisis has become scary with the impact that it's having on young people. You know, you... You go, you go into schools and you speak to teachers who have done it for 40 years and they're just worn down by how much the system has changed and you meet teachers who have just got into teaching who have been there a year and, and have forgotten all the reasons that they went into it in the first place. Very quickly worn down. Yeah, and it just doesn't seem... It does not seem like it is a job which is compatible with life. It just seems the workload, the targets the unrealistic expectations and at the same time you have a government and a media which tells you that you're not working hard enough and you're complaining about nothing and you don't deserve your pension and you have your six weeks of holidays what are you moaning about um i think it's impossible i quite like watching the adverts for teaching sometimes and sort of com comparing the reality to the adverts those adverts that have been put together by people who have never been in a school yeah yeah so that, that collection, Burning Books, obviously you, you toured it, and then it, am I right in thinking it went into a sort of stage show? Yeah. Yes, so I um, so I wrote the collection, and then I sort of made that into a poetry and music show, which um, I toured with my band, and we took to Edinburgh in 2014, 2015. And then I kind of got to the end of the national tour in 2015, and I thought, actually, I'm, the really interesting thing was that I was every night I was performing it more and more teachers were coming up and talking to me and telling me their own stories and experiences of teaching and I felt like actually I had more to say than ever um, at the end of that tour and I didn't want to sort of just put it on the shelf so that's when I applied to the Arts Council to get some funding to adapt it into a stage play yeah 
How was it? Because uh, unfortunately I missed it. But um, yeah, was it, how, how did it go down? How was it received? Uh, you missed it because uh, we couldn't get a date in London. It was impossible to find a London theatre that would book it um, on its tour. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it went, but when we eventually got there and we got it on tour, the response was brilliant. It was such a hard slog getting there. Um, you know, I, I literally just came off this poetry tour and was like, I'm going to write a play. And thought, well, I can write poems. How hard is playwriting? And I uh, got this funding and I started writing and I discovered that playwriting is, is such a different skill. It's a completely different skill. Um, and I wrote um, 25 drafts of it, um, working with um, directors and actors, um, kind of going in and, and going having these very long workshopping days where they would read through it and they'd give me their feedback and for the first like 10 drafts the feedback was this is awful um so it was really hard work and then eventually um eventually kind of we we got together a draft which worked but things move so slowly in sort of theater compared to performance poetry so then it was about like getting um, it in front of audiences and getting feedback from audiences and then uh, getting some uh, funding to actually take it on tour. But when it went on tour, it went to sort of, it went, I mean, all around the country, not London. Um, and it went uh, to the NUT National Conference um, and the feedback was brilliant. It was, it was really good. And actually we specifically, we used some funding to pay for an evaluator to capture some audience feedback because I wanted to see whether it was resonating with audiences in the same way that the poetry show had um, and actually the interesting thing was that it didn't resonate in the same way as the poetry show did the poetry show was very much kind of uh, quite a lot of it was part of like laughing at the government and how out of touch they were yeah. whereas a lot of teachers came to see the play and said actually this is quite hard seeing watching my life yeah, it, you know, the uh, most common bit of feedback was this is a bit of a busman's holiday, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, the feedback was, was positive, but in a way that it was like, it's a bit too real. You mentioned, uh, you obviously, you used to write in performance poetry. What would you say the main difference, because some people argue all, all poetry is, is meant to be performed or read aloud, but what, what would you say from a sort of writer's viewpoint, the difference between performance poetry and just poetry is? I think... You could ask me that five different days in a row and I'd give you five different answers. Um, I think a lot of performance poetry is about something... Well, I think the thing with page poetry is it. I like page poetry. I like reading poetry on the page if, if it needs... If the enjoyment of reading it is reading it through a few times and getting, it, getting something different from it each time you read it. And I think performance poetry is something which... The magic is hearing it live, is hearing it performed. Whether that's the rhythm or something clever that you're doing with the rhyme or your own ability to perform it, I think it's not, I think there's not a simple answer. It's something about the magic of it being performed or the magic of it being on the page. And I think if there was an easy answer, everyone would be doing it. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's always easy to capture that. Yeah. I can't speak to you and not mention the BBC Poetry Slam last year I mean it's May but I'm still going to congratulate you well done that's a massive achievement just how was that it, it, Slam Poetry to me seems very cutthroat almost because there's so many good poets doing it and you were the cream of the crop so yeah. how, how was it um, it was brutal it was really brutal and uh, I have uh, hadn't done a slam for seven or eight years and I don't know if I do one again because they are they are 
um, they are brutal, you know. And that the final, there were like five of us in that final, and and any of us could have won. The other boats were brilliant. Um, and so much of slams just comes down to luck. It comes down to what the judges are looking for, uh, what mood the audience are in, um, what's, how your work complements or juxtaposes what the other poets are doing. Um, yeah, it was great fun. It was hard work. You're braver than me. I've still yet to ever enter one. Um, right, let's talk about your latest collection, A Self-Help Guide to Being in Love with Jeremy Corbyn. Apart from its amazing title... Tell me about it. It's not strictly politics, is it? I, I get a sense a lot of it is quite autobiographical as well. It is. Um, yes, it's a lot more autobiographical than my first book, certainly. But I think probably one of the reasons for the title is to is to m maybe hide some of that autobiography that is within it, um, because I'm not very good these days at talking about myself in poetry. I'm going to ask you... Uh, a question that I, I, I hate journalists that ask it, but I need to ask it. What's wrong with modern politics? Because you could be here all night, I suppose. But if you could sum up maybe the main things that are your, your biggest bugbears, because obviously that's, that seems to be a driving force behind this collection, modern politics, and it's, it's I don't, downfall. What's wrong with modern politics? Again, you could ask me that five different days, give me five different answers. Um, you know what? I think that I don't know. I think that Twitter has a big part to play in something that's wrong with modern politics. I am so fed up with the fact that we have lost all sense of nuance. I get really frustrated with the fact that if you can't say it in 140 or whatever it is 280 characters, there's there's no point in saying it. And you know, and I kind of get fed up with this whole nuance is gone. If, and if, if you, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you can't say something on, in that like, snappy tweet, then it's irrelevant. And people, and I think we've become really kind of used to just getting our headlines and our information in tiny little sentences. Um, and so you can see a headline on Twitter. You know, you can see a headline about Corbyn. And it can have no evidence and nothing to back it up. But you've seen that headline and you've read and it's been retweeted 200 times. That so must be the truth. Um, that is a big thing that frustrates me about modern politics. Why are more people engaged in politics now? Do you think? Probably because of Twitter. <laughs> I was going to say that leads nicely in, doesn't it? Probably because we've lost all nuance and you can sum something up in 240 characters. Um, why are people so engaged? I think. Brexit has made people. Brexit has um, has created this huge divide, and we are no longer left and right. We are leave and remain, um, and everybody has a view on it. Nobody, nobody says oh, I'm not really bothered one way or another. Everybody has a view on it. Like not just like I want to leave or remain. Some people are like oh, I just wish it was. I just wish it was over. Even if you're bored of Brexit, you still have strong feelings about it. Um, I think in terms of where Corbyn came from. He came out of, um, certainly for me, being a member for nine years and feeling very frustrated and let down and disappointed by the Labour Party. Um, 
and he represented something that, that we haven't seen in the Labour Party for a very long time. And, you know, it was amazing when he came along. I remember talking to um, a friend of mine and we were like, as if this 70-year-old man is going to, like, energise the youth of the party. Like, it, on paper, it shouldn't work. Um, Corbyn and Brexit, I think, are why people are so engaged in politics. It leads me on nicely. I mean, I, I live a Conservative stronghold. I always have. Always been Labour. And just like you, I hated New Labour. I, I, you know, they didn't represent what I believe Labour should be representing. What is it about Corbyn that that you honestly think he can do it? You know, I mean, I know you've met him because, uh, I mean, how was that as well? But um, <laughs> um, what what is it about Corbyn that that's really captured the imagination, especially of of younger voters, and sort of it's almost reinvigorated politics a little bit, hasn't it? I think it's that he's honest. I think you don't feel that you're being sold a line. You don't feel like you're being sold politics. You know, we got so used to just politicians just telling us whatever they felt we wanted to hear. And like, you know, this whole thing with Brexit, I have different political views to Corbyn on Brexit. But at least I feel like he's telling he's telling me the truth. Even when I don't agree with him, I admire him for sticking to his principles. And I admire the fact that he doesn't just play the game. Um, and I think one of these things about, like, people were like, oh, well, I don't know where he stands on, on, this, on this issue. And I, think, and I think that's about nuance. That's because he, a lot of the time he won't just give people sound bites. Because we're in an incredibly complex situation and it's very difficult to just something, sum something up in a sound bite anymore. Um, that's why I think young people like him. What was it like meeting him? How did he? Did he watch the show or did you just meet him? He he didn't watch the show. He invited me to come and have a cup of tea with him. Um, it's so cool, being in itself. <laughs> he was he was very nice. He was very sweet. Uh, he uh, told me that he loves Irish poetry. Um, he uh, asked me for a copy of my book, which was really embarrassing, um, especially with his wife on the other side of the room. Um, he, yeah, he was, he was really normal, he was very friendly. He'd just given this um, incredibly uh, hard and difficult speech to the media about the fact that basically he wants to like, nationalise the media and the Daily Mail had gone at him. And then 10 minutes later, he was having a cup of tea with me and seemed very relaxed and um, he was really nice. He seemed really normal. I mean, I suppose the last question I want to ask about him is, is can he do it? Because I believe he can, you believe he can. Uh, my, my parents are very much... Uh, working class yet they continue to vote Tory and it baffles me because it's it's working class people voting for elitist policies and, and it makes no sense to me I don't know what it is maybe it's because the, the way the media is they buy into it I suppose but um, your mum and my mum like as I've said sound very very similar sort of questioning oh why do you believe him and I think you hit the nail on the head for me he does sound like he's, he's talking the truth but yeah can, it, can he do it? I think that he can do it but I think he needs the backing of his party and I think that's the thing that frustrates me I think it really frustrates me when you know having been a member for 12 years now I have supported leaders that I have been very politically opposed to within the Labour Party for the good of the party yeah. um, and it really frustrates me that there are people in the party who refuse to do that under Corbyn
good answer. Um, right, I just wanted to talk about some actual poems in there. It, it, as I've said to you before, this it, honestly, it was an absolute joy to read. I've read it, I've read it a few times, and I've, I've had it a while before I approached you to do this. So I'm very excited about this. But the first poem I'd like to talk about, um, Invisible. So could you tell me a little bit about Invisible? Invisible is about um, my mum invited me uh, round for dinner with some people that she knew. I won't say more than that. And um, they were very right wing. And one woman spent the entire evening trying to tell me that poverty in the UK does not exist. Um, and this, and I guess that poem is a much more uh, eloquent response than what I said on the night when I'd had half a bottle of wine. The Scroobius Pip quote that everyone, uh, you know, when he, he talks about your poetry, that somehow Jess manages to be hard-hitting in a way that's so subtle you don't realise until the bruises come up. I, For me, that poem embodies that um, because when I read it, I've written down here, you almost know the end of the lines before it comes and that makes it very harrowing and the example of what it is, Brian who's 80 you knew that library was going to be closed before you got to the end of that and it, it, it's horrible to read but that is the truth and I, I love the fact that there was absolutely no hiding you know, your, your views on universal credit and the state of things, I, I just think it's, it's hard hitting but it's what people need to read because I think it's a true reflection of life and I think and I think it's so easy, you know, I make no secret of the fact that I'm middle class um, and uh, my life is perfectly comfortable um, and I volunteer in a food bank and have done for a few years and it's just how rapidly things have gone downhill, the fact that um, we've had such an increase in users and people's stories are just getting more and more dire and the, the safety net is just gone. There is nothing for the most vulnerable people in society. And you just feel like, why are people not rioting in the streets about this? Why are we, why are we letting this happen? Why are we letting ourselves get distracted by things like Brexit? Because I feel like, yes, Brexit is very important, but while, while we are arguing about Brexit, Rome is burning and and, and we and without sounding really melodramatic, it's not melodramatic because it's the truth, there are people who are starving to death, there are people who are being forced to work to death and I just think that's it's shocking, that shouldn't be happening I think that's why Pip said what he did because the tone you have is, is a really easy tone and you can read it and you, you sort of take it in, but then when you really think about what you've just read it's exactly what you just said this stuff is happening and mm. um, the other poem I absolutely well I said all of them but high art I think is brilliant um, the, the, the Ken Loach BAFTA sort of Shiraz 23 pound ticket reminded me of when Pulp played uh, Glastonbury and was singing common people back at the crowd and it all played like 200 pounds to get in there so there was, there was not a common person in sight if you like and the whole sort of retweet until the government has fallen, sort of, I don't know, real activism, the hypocrisy and the state of our media. The state of the UK like media and journalism, I suppose, is I think it sort of highlights that as well. But, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit of that? Because I thought that was brilliant. Um, I get very frustrated by um, middle-class people who 
make art that they claim is going to have some sort of life-changing effect on people. Um, and I went to see a show that, like, the tagline or the blurb was that it was going to um, uh, empower the most vulnerable people in society to stand up against their oppressors. Was that a real show that you... Yes, it was a real show. Oh, very much so, yeah, it was a real show. I mean, it came to Leicester, it definitely would have come to London. Um, yeah, and uh, it was charging £23 a ticket, and uh, it was absolute nonsense. It was just naked men setting things on fire, weeing on each other. Um, and then it was the fact that at the end, these actors came out and they said to us, you know, well, this, by the way, this show is inspiring, it's empowering. And, um, and all these... And, you know, I was sat there and it was just, it was two hours of like real, what was meant to be kind of shocking, violence, uh, blood, vomit, all sorts. And I was looking around and I was looking at people and they, everybody looked completely just bored by it. And then at the end, it got a standing ovation. And I thought, this is the Emperor's new clothes. None of you actually believe this. And you know what, and what a difference this is actually making in this middle-class theatre to this Guardian reading audience to £23 a ticket. And, and I'm not saying that art like that shouldn't exist. Art very, like that very much should exist. There is a market for it, people enjoy it. But just don't tell me that it's going to change anybody's life. Because it's absolutely, of course it's not. It, it sort of reminded me as well of this idea, which is the whole reason I'm doing this podcast, you know, that that poetry is an elitist thing and you know, if you don't understand it, you know, oh, well, don't bother with it. Sort of had a little bit of that sort of vibe about it as well. The other one, uh, Ballad of the Unemployed Arts Graduate, but maybe because I relate to it, maybe because it's definitely, well, I assume it's quite autobiographical for you as well. Um, some of the lines in there are hilarious. Knowing your work, sort of, I could see how you was tilting your head at the YouTube, vintage YouTube videos and stuff like that. I thought that was brilliant. But it's this whole idea, I suppose, of the reality versus dream, the Instagram versus reality. Uh, and the power of art sort of oppressed creativity for financial gain and, and being true to yourself. I, I, I enjoyed it massively. But yeah, a couple of words on that would be great. So I think, you know, when I was 18, I was in university, I just started my creative writing degree and I thought I had incredibly romantic ideas about what being a poet would mean and I had no idea how I was going to make any money but it wasn't going to matter because I was just going to write my poems and live a very sort of tortured exciting existence and then now I'm 30 and I'm married and I live in a semi-detached house in Leicester with a dog um, and some of that romance has slightly gone away and I'm actually thinking about how am I going to buy the mortgage it's about what do you do when the sort of romantic idea of art isn't actually there anymore and you've got to you've got to pay the mortgage the last poem that I want to talk about is also the last poem in the book. Uh, we must be careful not to do, not to do to Jeremy Corbyn what we did to Barack Obama and put him on a pedestal from which he can only be a disappointment. Which I think is a fantastic title, and I love how tongue-in-cheek it is, and you know, sort of a bit of a poke at the Tories and the media and people like my mum and dad, who I've absolutely slagged off in this interview, haven't I? So, but um, yeah, just, just a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this um, this poem actually has a bit of a story. So I just wrote this poem because um, I, I wanted to put it at the end of the collection and the show to be like, you know, as much as I like Jeremy Corbyn. And this, th this was really at the height of Corbyn mania as well. And I felt that it was really important that... Um, we didn't think anybody in a position of responsibility was flawless um, for a whole host of different reasons. Um, but I did this poem um, 
Oh, I did this poem at Labour Party Conference and an ITV journalist came and grabbed me afterwards and said, um, can I do a quick interview with you? And, he in and I'd had such a busy day. I'd driven from like Leicester to Oxford. I'd done a school workshop. I'd driven to Liverpool. Um, I was knackered. I'd done the gig. I just wanted to go to bed. He interviewed me for 45 minutes uh, until I was so unintelligible and knackered and he took the last five minutes from that interview and he intercut it with uh, bits of that poem and he put it on Twitter and uh, so it was really so all the kind of humour uh, was completely out of context it didn't work and uh, it very much played to a right wing ITV audience and I had about ten days of trolling on that poem uh, so yes, but I still, I mean, I, it still comes at the end of the show and I enjoy performing it. But um, yes, that, that poem kicked up a bit of a storm a while ago. <laughs> Believe it or not, maybe one of the reasons I was so drawn to buying this in the first place is I, I wrote a poem about Corbyn on, when he was re-elected for the second time as Labour leader. And it's one of the few political poems I, I do live if I ever perform. And you've got a Dream reference in one of your poems and... I, I've got a Dream reference in that poem, um, but that my poem is very much sort of a dig at New Labour as well. What, what was it being a member for as long as you were with Labour Party that was that was so almost grotesque about New Labour? Do you think why 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 was it wrong for Labour that whole period of Blair and Brown? I just I feel that a government should work from the bottom of society upwards. And you look out for the most vulnerable people first and you and you build up from there. And I have always felt, you know, growing up in a, a strong Labour Party household, I've always felt that that is what the Labour Party should do. And, um, and New Labour did not do that. New Labour um, should be ashamed of themselves, the way that they voted on the welfare reforms, the bedroom tax, um, tuition fees, academies... Um, the immigration mug, um, yeah, all sorts of things, yeah. Right, we'll leave politics to aside for a moment. Um, well, sort of, a, a question I get asked a lot, sort of going back to education by my students, is um, they say to me all the time, what's the point in poetry, why do we study it? It's such, a, it's such an integral part of our education in English. What's your view on that? Why, if I played this to my students, what, what is Jess Green going to tell them that... that the reason they're studying poetry how, how is it going to benefit them I suppose so I think um, I've been asked this question quite a, quite a lot recently because there's been an increase in poetry book sales and increase of people going to poetry events and um, why why at the moment is there a sudden new interest in poetry and I think that is because we are living through such turbulent and uncertain times and I think in those times you know people look for answers and they look for nuance. <laughs> and, uh, and I think poetry, poetry has a real way of crystallizing ideas. And it's often very short as well. And it's often trying to get a message across using as few words as possible. And, and I think it often is saying something quite profound and providing answers in a very crystallized way. And I think we need answers at the moment and we need nuance and I think poetry is providing that. It's refreshing to hear someone else say that. I can tell my students it's not just me now. Um, 
also, you, you've sort of answered the question there. I've asked every poet that's been on this podcast why it is we turn to poetry as a, as a nation, as a as, well, not even as a nation, as as a human being. What? Why do we turn to poetry in the times of these funerals, weddings, momentous occasions? I, I suppose you've answered that, really. I don't know, but I. This is going to sound really knobby and arty. <laughs> There have been so many times in my life when poetry has just made me feel less alone. You know, that feeling when you read in a poem something that you thought you were the only person that thought or you thought you were the only person who worried about it. Um, I was listening to um, the poet Rob Orton. I was listening to him talk on uh, on a thing earlier and he was talking about um, how much he, like, worries about time and how, like, worries about like the days passing and the, just the way that he described it I was like I have that exact same thought and I just and I just never heard it laid down in that way before and I think poetry poetry is a community and it makes people feel feel part of that community and feel less alone and I think that's really important especially in times like now I was going to say it to Mick and said it was a knobby answer but then it was a really good answer so um <laughs> Do you think, and this is a question I'm not asking another poet, but because you're into education and politics, and I often wonder this as a teacher myself in front of a class, do you think there's a place for political poetry within schools? Because, I mean, there's no rule as such on it, but you're, you're obviously as a teacher you're supposed to be impartial. But I know for a fact my students can tell I am massively labour. I get excited about certain poems and other things. When, uh, for example, when they say, "Oh, why don't we? Why don't we do it of mice and men for GCSE anymore?" I go, "Blame Gove. It's not British." And they're like, "What?" And then I'm, I think, "Right, well, I have to stop there. Just do some research." But do you think there is a place for political poetry in mainstream school education? Yeah, absolutely. There should be. Um, and I think it is incredibly frustrating that teachers have to be politically impartial when politics is ha having such a terrible impact on schools and teachers and education. Um, of course, of course, there should be uh, political poetry on the curriculum, particularly when most kids don't get to study politics. And I think there is a real reason for that. I think that a Tory government doesn't want our kids studying politics. Um, yes, absolutely. And I think and and young people are have never been so engaged in politics and that I think is because of social media and they have real access to hearing other young people's opinions and ideas and so there is a real thirst for it and I think it's patronising to say that there isn't I think there's more of a thirst for political poetry than there is for like war poetry these days Right, as we sort of wrap this up um, I always talk to poets about the, the sort of writing process they go through and there's the age-old question, how do you know when you've reached the end of a poem? And I've had lots of many, many different answers for this, but when you're writing, how do you know you've reached the end? Because I feel poetry is one of those things you could literally spend your whole life writing one poem, keep going back to it, editing it. I think there's two answers to this. One of the answers is you just know. And the other answer is, well, a poem's never finished because... And it's funny, you know, I go back to stuff that I wrote a few years ago and I'm like, oh, that's awful. But if you leave it long enough, I went back to something which a few years ago I thought was awful and then I went back to it recently and I was like, oh, actually, it's not that bad. So you, you've kind of come full circle on that. So I think sometimes you just know, 
and sometimes you can edit it for the rest of your life. A bit like cardigans, they sort of go in and out of uh, fashion, <laughs> yeah. don't they? Um, are you, when you write, are you sort of, uh, I mean, for me sometimes when I write a poem, I feel it, it just comes out onto the page and then I don't write anything for another two months and I'll edit it a bit and sometimes as a writer you think, wow, I wrote that so quickly, is that absolute cack or, or, or is it good? What sort of writer would you describe yourself as? Are you, do you get it all on the page and it's done or do you, do you work over time? I'm a real mix, um, so I try and write every day, I try and do at least 10, 15 minutes every day um, and sometimes that 10, 90% of the time, that 10, 15 minutes is just uh, isn't very good and I have to come back and I work on it um, and very occasionally I'll write something and I'll think oh, that's actually really good but that is very occasionally I think most of the time it's about working on it and I think also knowing it can always be better knowing that if you've thrown it down the page and you thought that's brilliant I used to do that a lot and then now these days I think alright well if you've just thrown it down and you think it's brilliant imagine if you worked on it a bit more how brilliant could it be then and you're touring uh, at the minute the Jeremy Corbyn uh, collection with a band, this current leg, isn't it? Yeah, so... Um, Mischief Thieves? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the band, are, we did, we're doing five dates together. So the tour's quite long, it's like about 30 dates. And uh, we did, we're doing five band shows. We did one in York last week. We've got uh, one in Canada Water tomorrow. And then we've got uh, a couple in Liverpool. And then the autumn we're doing a couple, I don't know, somewhere else. Yeah. You got a website though. I think this this will be the end at the end of May, so people can check out the autumn dates. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, website is jessgreenpoet.com. I'm really bad at updating it, so uh, the best place to get all this information is uh, Twitter and Instagram, where I jessgreenpoet. I can say Instagram. I've seen uh, Dave do some lovely adverts for you. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, um, my whole Instagram is just like my husband and my dog. I can say dogs and Dave. There you go. Uh, finally, you've got your own poetry night and. Basically, who who should we be listening to? Not not people we've heard of, you know, but um, Leicestershire poets, perhaps, or poets you you've played with, poets we may not have heard of, that heard of, sorry, that are doing real good things. Who who should be on our radar? Oh, this is such a tricky question. Um, let me just reel some off. Um, who's really good? Leicester poet Shruti Chohan is brilliant. Um, he counts as a Midlands poet, although he's based in London now. Uh, ben Norris, although you probably all know him because he was BBC Sam champion last year. He's really good. Oh, I'm going to remember loads as soon as I uh, stop answering this question. Who else should you heard of? Uh, there is a brilliant poet who I recently discovered called uh, Lizette Orton. She's fantastic. She's based up in the north. Katie Watson, she's brilliant. Jess Green, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Good luck with the rest of your tour. and. Please write something new soon. Thank you very much. So there we have it. Jess Green, what an interview. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed recording that episode. Jess was a joy to speak to. I did go and see the self-help guide to being in love with Jeremy Corbyn's show at the Canada Water Theatre the next day. I cannot recommend that show enough. I've had the book for a while, as mentioned in the interview, but seeing Jess bring those poems to life with her talented band was truly an honour. Jess pulls no punches. Instead, she locks horns with modern politics until you're left wanting to laugh or cry. It is totally inspiring. I implore you to go and watch it. As Jess said, she will be touring the show throughout the autumn. Check out her website 
website, see if it's coming to a town near you, or have a weekend away. Do it. It's it's so worthwhile. Today's poetry recital again comes from our feature poet Jess Green, and it's one of the poems that I decided to speak to Jess about, and it's called Invisible. You've heard me wax lyrical about it with Jess, so now it's time to hear it for yourself. She says she does not see them, even though her eyes are open. But they do not gather at the door of her North London townhouse, nor in the gardens of her brother's Hampshire estate. Neither do they appear where the beach meets the sea at her coastal home. She is looking, but finds their existence hard to believe. People seem to be doing well for themselves these days, don't they? Unemployment down, FTSE 100 up. People still out shopping in Jules, Ted Baker and M&S. She holds her hands out like they span the country and asks me to pinpoint the poor I'm always banging on about. But it is dinner time. At age 28, I have learnt when my mum would rather I stop talking and digging and winding this woman next to her up. The previous week, I'm at our local Labour Party meeting. We meet in the smallest room in a neighbourhood centre. At the beginning, everyone chips in for the cost of the room hire. The man at the front has been invited to speak to us about universal credit, and no, he does not mind they spelt his name incorrectly on the agenda. He is non-partisan. He says that three times. He cannot express that enough. He is not here to campaign, just here to give the information we requested. He has worked in the benefit office for 15 years, grew up under Thatcher as a kid, but those days were nothing compared to this. At least she didn't make a secret of it, didn't speak through awkward, stoop-false smiles and proclaim that the six-week wait is for the benefit of all. And then with an entirely straight face, he says, universal credit is designed to kill off the poor. A woman in a wheelchair at the back agrees, says these new systems are a death sentence, DSA, ESA, PIP. Her and her friends have got a support group to help each other through this. They have lost two this year. It is February. Three strikes and you're down. The first two meetings are always in towns you've never heard of. Monday mornings, 9am, miles away. If you can't make it, you have one chance left. In the building next to the multi-storey car park, interviews are held on the top floor. If you cannot take the stairs, then there is a lift, except they are not insured for wheelchair users in case of fire. So with no prior notice, you are taxied to the next city over. And if you have plans, or the school run, or just don't want to go to Nottingham, then you are handed a flyer for the local food bank. The woman shrugs. The man at the front says that this American company have not been tasked with helping anybody. Nobody gets a kindness bonus. Their aim is to get you off their books by any means necessary. They earn commission by being callous and hard and sneaky. I do two hours in that food bank every other Tuesday. Demand has risen by 30%. We pack a box every 2.7 minutes for the man who sleeps behind Aldi and eats out the skip, for the retired nurse who hands over her voucher, shell-shocked and blinking. We hand out phones and tablets to complete universal credit applications because Brian is 80, has no internet access, and when he went to the library he has relied on for years, there was a closed sign on the door. The woman next to him was asked to pay back a £1,000 overspend. And when she said she didn't have that kind of money to hand, they slapped her with a year's sanction to think about what she'd done. And do we have any nappies for her baby of nine months? Can we throw in a few extra tins? See, it's not official, but she's had her friends and her kids on her sofa the past three weeks. Her friend is a primary school teacher with six weeks holiday and a pension. 
But when the private landlord upped the rent in favour of losing out to universal credit and the gas bill increased just as fast as the cost of living, well, she couldn't keep hold of the house of the cats. Now she sofa surfs with three under tens. It has been three months and no one at work suspects, but she is running out of friends and they are running out of patients and the council housing waiting list is six months at best. And her starting salary will not cover a cost of a deposit or two months advance rent. So now she shuffles the kids past beggars and sleeping bags in doorways, hoping that one day she might get some of that performance-related pay people keep telling her about. Back around the dinner table, we're at the tail end of a bank holiday weekend. My mum is giving me daggers, but fueled with the confidence of half a bottle of red, I ask this woman opposite me, holding her hands out while they span the country. How has it come to this? That the people at the top have pulled the ladder so far up, they have forgotten that the people at the bottom even exist. And that gap has been filled by fear and farage, Katie Hopkins and tabloid rhetoric. And meanwhile, bankers, MPs, CEOs, prime ministers, government departments, lords and boards, the highest earning second homeowners say they just don't see it. Too distracted by headlines pointing over the water to his finger hovering above the button like a bored judge at a singing contest. Never mind your empty cupboards, your failing health service, watch him. What will he do next? Blow the whole world to bits and then you'll feel like an idiot for moaning about your six week wait and your universal credit. So there we have it, Invisible by Jess Green. Powerful, thought-provoking, and unfortunately, a snapshot of truth about the world we live in today. A massive thank you to Jess for taking the time out to speak to me. Congratulations on the show. I absolutely loved it. Can't wait to see what you do next. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do leave us a comment over on our Instagram at People's Poetry Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at People underscore Poetry. And you can also send us an email if you want. People's Poetry Podcast at Hotmail.com. If you are a budding poet, aspiring poet, established poet, and you want to feature on the podcast, either as our feature poet, or you'd like to send us your work so that we can feature it as our recital section, please do email us again at People's Poetry Podcast at Hotmail.com and we will get you on the show all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening i hope you've enjoyed our selection of poets for series one we have got one more episode to come one episode per series i'm going to be speaking to somebody about a poem that they love not necessarily a poet perhaps just a poetry fan i'm going to kick things off by doing the first one talking to you on episode five about a poem that stayed with me thank you very much for listening i've been jimmy bowman